Trump at CPAC. DeSantis on tour and did the January 6th committee perpetuate a hoax? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the extraordinarily tall Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the sage of authenticity woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National You podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Ball and Branch Sheets and Babble. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Jim Garrity, uh, first of all, uh, please excuse my voice, fighting a little bit of a cold. But we had this uh, split screen in effect over the last uh, several days over the weekend with uh, Donald Trump at CPAC and Ron DeSantis on his book tour and especially out at the Reagan Presidential Library. Uh, Trump, I hate to say it, I thought was for him in fine form at um, CPAC. If there is any doubt that he remains a powerful performer, that speech should have removed it. And it gave us a hint of what his message is going to be, which is MAGA more than ever. And we need to crush once and for all all those forces that opposed me. And he's going to find a way to define Ron DeSantis as a, at least an ally of those forces. Yeah, and, and I'd be curious to see how well that sales pitch works. Uh, that Ron DeSantis, the guy who was the epitome of everything that was wrong during the pandemic and public enemy number one in so many capacities, uh, somehow became the establishment. And, you know, I understand that Trump is honest to God going to try to argue that, you know, DeSantis was Mr. Lockdown while he, Trump, who pretty much acquiesced to everything Fauci wanted for the first, you know, half year or so of the uh, response to the pandemic, that Trump was the guy who was fighting to open the schools and things like that. Um, look, I, I'm not surprised that uh, Trump got a, you know, exceptionally uh, enthusiastic reception at CPAC. It's basically turned into Trump PAC. Um, there's a good reason why Ron DeSantis didn't show up and Mike Pence and Glenn Youngkin did not. And, you know, Nikki Haley got booed. It's a Trump rally. It's a four-day Trump rally on the Potomac. And if you're one of these other candidates, why would you go? I think Nikki Haley, you know, rolled the dice, and I don't think it worked out as she might have hoped. Um, this is the other thing. Also, is that people I, I heard people saying that the the uh, the hall was not filled for Trump's speech. I don't know if that's you know just a matter of the timing or something. I did notice like when Trump spoke at the NRA convention last year uh, in Houston. He did not fill the room. I don't know whether that's because Trump has now given a lot of speeches at these conferences year after year, and it's not as big a deal, and people aren't you know, going to clear their schedule from doing other stuff to watch Trump. Um, but also just like you know, when, when CPAC made the decision to have Kerry Lake give the Reagan dinner oh address, my gosh. Oh they, my made gosh. The, right, they made the decision to give Mike Lindell a, uh, a, a prime speaking slot to emphasize that his pillows are certified Venezuelan hacker-free and don't involve any Chinese bamboo in the paper of the ballots in Arizona. You know, like, like when you make these choices, these are the consequences that people who are not diehard Trump heads are like, why would I pay money to go to this thing? I can go to other events. I can spend my money other ways. If I really want to do it, I can watch the speeches on YouTube or something. And that's, I think, you know, like, so CPAC has self-marginalized itself. So yeah, I'm not surprised Trump got a, a big enthusiastic reaction. I don't know if that CPAC is as mm -hmm. representative, representative of Republican yeah. primary voters as it used to be. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I'm you know good for Trump, but I'm not really sure it's necessarily uh, as as illuminative or reflective as it used to be. Yeah. So so no, there are a couple different ways to look at this, but w one of them is if the Republican Party is ready just to go back to conventional politics, DeSantis's speech was great. You know, he has a message. He has a record. It was, um, you know, ha had good politician type jokes in there. But if it's not ready, uh, you still got Trump, who is uh, vivid and wild and, uh, you know, maybe not so much unpredictable anymore because we've we've seen it so many times. But um, my worry is that just I'm, I'm not sure how that DeSantis approach is going to match up to uh, um, th th this uh, sort of crazy um, outlandish 
performer that at least not you know some some percentage of the party half of it or a little less is uh, still really enamored of that's a great way to frame it and i'm not sure either um ron DeSantis is in intellectual exercise on the part of republicans he does touch all the right buttons tickle the right erogenous zones but his appeal is that he's a marginally safer candidate in a general election and therefore more likely to win than Donald Trump is. And that's something you have to talk yourself into. Donald Trump's appeal, by contrast, is all id. So I watched all 72 straight hours of Donald Trump's announcement speech. It was the most boring, rambling (laughs) affair you could experience. And he demonstrated zero signs of life in the interim until he showed up at CPAC. The moment that is... Going that made all the clips, and that deserves to make all the clips, is when he said, quote, in 2016, I declared I am your voice. Today I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice, and for those of you who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. Mm-hmm. His campaign is a vehicle for retribution, not theirs, but his. Mm-hmm. What gets him out of bed in the morning, what really gets him jazzed, and what got him jazzed in that announcement speech, is the perception that he has been wronged, that he is being persecuted by an ever-expanding number of forces at this point, and that his re-election would deliver some sort of, meet out some sort of final justice to all those, all those forces. That sort of made sense in 2016 in the abstract from the perspective of a Republican voter who perceived themselves to be similarly disadvantaged by omnipresent, unseen, ill-defined forces that had robbed them of their proper due in life. Donald Trump's complaints now, however, are very concrete and specific. They have to do with his prosecution by the justice or investigation by the Justice Department and his investigation by state level justice departments and the fact that he was denied his reelection victory. Um, That's not something that the average Republican voter is going to relate to as as much as these sort of vague notions that they deserved more in life than they got. Uh, Mm -hmm. So he might have problems if we have to get down into the specifics. But if it's just an emotional appeal, then yeah, that emotional appeal is real powerful and Republicans shouldn't discount the the attractiveness of a message that says, I am the instrument by which you are going to stick it to all the people you don't like. Yeah, I I am your retribution. That if you want to boil down a core populist uh, message, (laughs) that's it. The the other really... uh, quotable uh, passage, Charlie, from Trump's speech was, you know, prior to me coming along, the party was run by neocons and warmongers and globalists and open border fanatics and fools and Jeb Bush and Karl Rove. And we, we, uh, uh, we have to crush those, those, those people and never, ever, ever go back. Yeah, before I get to that, I have one observation on the I am your retribution line. And mm-hmm. that is that when contrasted with DeSantis's own populist line, I stood in the way, it speaks to the difference between their approaches and to a theme that I think will emerge within the primary. What DeSantis says in Florida is far less alarming. Retribution is an alarming word. I stood in the way is not if you're talking about being the governor of a state mm-hmm. and blocking legislation or blocking federal action or what you will. If DeSantis is clever, the way he will play this is to say retribution for what? And try and make it clear that Trump's grievances are largely his own. And then contrast it with his own line, which is I stood in the way when the people that were out to destroy your livelihoods or lock you inside or stop your children going to school came for you and your interests. If he's clever, he'll be able to play that in a way that says, I'm actually doing things. I'm standing in the way of things and passing things, whereas this is mm-hmm. all about personal grievance. But Meatball, that aside, Ron. Meatball, let me tell you, <laughs> Don Lemon said the worst thing about me the other night, and you did nothing. Right? <laughs> I've seen all these people. Nobody's defending me. Nothing does it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, look, I, I have uh, a problem with the way that Trump and many Trump-adjacent activists and commentators use perfectly good Republican politicians as a stand-in for ineffective squish. I understand that there is a wing of the Republican Party that is ineffective. I am not part of that wing. 
But the people that Trump was talking about there really don't belong to it. Jeb Bush? I don't agree with Jeb Bush on everything. I didn't want him to be the nominee in 2016 for a number of reasons. But who is afraid of going back to the politics of Jeb Bush? Do those who say this know what Jeb Bush did in Florida? 90% of the policies that have been continued by Ron DeSantis and before him Rick Scott and before that even Charlie Crist were Jeb Bush's policies. Modern Florida is Jeb Bush's policies. Between the end of the failure of Reconstruction and 1966, zero Republicans won the governorship in Florida. There were three Republican governors after the Civil War, but the Democrats weren't allowed to compete, so I'm not counting those. Three Republican governors One had one term, was really a Democrat, was a pro-segregationist who only ran against the incumbent because the incumbent was against capital punishment. The second lost in a landslide after one term. The third was Jeb. And Jeb won re-election. The only Republican in the history of the state of Florida up until that point to win a second term as governor. Look at what he did with it. You just cannot convince me that it would be awful to go back to the Republican Party of Jeb Bush, a Republican Party in Florida that cut 10% of the workforce, that slashed civil service protections for the remaining workers, who cut taxes by about 13 to $19 billion, depending on how, depending on how you count it, cut spending, sorry, spending is $19 billion, cut taxes by $2 billion, got rid of taxes on all sorts of uh, investment vehicles, stocks, mutual funds, savings. That's why old people like it so much, other than the weather. Got rid of affirmative action. Got rid of high-speed rail. Did school choice until it was struck down by the court. It won't be next time. Did Medicaid privatization. Passed 18 anti-gun control bills. I mean, it's just... (laughs) There's nothing here that, that is... That, that is worth our opprobrium. The same is true of Paul Ryan. Again, I don't agree with Paul Ryan on everything, but what did Paul Ryan do to Donald Trump except criticize his behavior? He shepherded through a repeal of Obamacare. The House achieved that. He shepherded through Trump's tax cuts, which did succeed. He shepherded through the partial repeal of Dodd-Frank, even though Paul Ryan is more of a squish on immigration than Donald Trump. Ryan put that aside while he was Speaker of the House. And Ryan was only Speaker while Trump was President because the Freedom Caucus, which at that point contained Ron DeSantis, had said no to Kevin McCarthy in 2015. And so they got Paul Ryan instead, with whom they were happy. And then, of course, a few years later, Donald Trump's favorite candidate, Kevin McCarthy, gets back in over the objections of the Freedom Caucus, and then Trump has the temerity to say, look at that Paul Ryan, he's a squish. So this this mythical past, which, by the way, now seems to include Reagan, there was an Axios piece saying that one of the approaches that Donald Trump intends to take against Ron DeSantis is to accuse him of being a Reagan Republican. So Reagan's out too now, is it? I think this is crazy. But I also think, as I wrote yesterday, that this is a weird approach to politics, that it is akin in some ways to Carrie Lake in Arizona saying, if you're a McCain Republican, get out. You need McCain Republicans. You need Larry Hogan Republicans. You need non-Republicans. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you don't like these people. I don't like some of them either. But this country is not a one-party dictatorship. And in fact, at the moment, there are more of the other party than there are Republicans. And you cannot win unless you win moderate Republicans, independents, and even some Democrats and left-of-center voters. That's how you win the presidency. It is not a flaw. It is not a flaw to appeal to different sorts of people. If you are not a conservative, you shouldn't win the nomination. You have to have the praise from the right people. You have to have the right set of policies. But there is this weird conception that I see bubbling up that the moment that anyone who is not supposedly ideologically pure, although that's malleable around Donald Trump's whims, 
the minute that anyone who is not ideologically pure or loyal praises a different candidate, then that somehow implies that there is a flaw. So that Ron DeSantis is winning 60% of Florida voters is a problem because that coalition includes all sorts of people we supposedly don't like. That Ronald Reagan's landslide victories that included a lot of Democrats is a problem. That the only real way to win is to win 46% of the vote with your opponent squeaking out less in the Electoral College. This is, this is nonsense. This is not how you win. And we should be aware of it by now. I mean, if we had seen gallivanting Republican victories in every election for the last eight years, it would be one thing for Trump to stand there and say, hey, I vanquished all of these losers. I probably would oppose a great deal of what he was trying to do, but it would be one thing to point to success. But he's actually not pointing to success. He's pointing to a fluke election run against the most unlike candidate in American history in 2016, then a loss in 2018, then a loss in 2020, then a loss in 2022. And he has the absolute temerity to cast himself as a savior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the irony of Trump's appropriation of the term rhino is extraordinary because he doesn't like a lot of the Republican Party, as, as this new tack suggests, and he'll quit on it in a minute. If it if it doesn't uh, nominate him again or, or fall into line. So, Jim, Charlie mentioned that Axios quote, which I was struck by too, and I was planning to come, come to you with it uh, even before Charlie mentioned it. So Reagan Republican, Ron, the, I think the quote was, DeSantis has Reagan Republican vulnerabilities. What does that mean to you? And is that true? Obviously, entitlements, which Trump has been hitting really hard, are part of that case against the governor. You know, he's got those vulnerabilities where he probably won't win the state of Minnesota. <laughs> you know, and, and what Republican would want to follow that Reagan lead, right? What did it ever do for us? Uh, by the way, it's worth noting there are some angry little malcontents. No, uh, some people who identify on the right who argue Reagan's presidency was a failure. Uh, obviously, the amnesty deal jumps to mind. They argue about the crack academic. Uh, they argue. They point to various points and say, "Ah, therefore, uh, jobs going overseas. Therefore, the 1980s were this terrible dystopian hellscape, and uh, thus, you know, Reagan is not nearly as good as conservatives think he is." Um, I mean, in my school of thought, there's a there's a you know there are a lot of names we can call those people. Primarily, liberals are the people who run around saying the Reagan years and the 80s were not a good time and that actually everything was getting worse and, and all of that. Um, look, I, I think, first of all, I mean, you know, uh, Trump really doesn't like sharing the stage literally or metaphorically with anyone. So if you said to a Republican, who are your two favorite presidents? Let's say they're, you know, they still have bitterness with George W. Bush over, uh, the Iraq war or the recession that started at the end of his presidency or, or something like that. And you say, ah, I don't like Bush, but you know, Reagan and Trump would probably be the two most common answers. And Trump doesn't like the idea that he has to share greatness with Ronald Reagan. And also, you know, those who are old enough to remember Ronald Reagan, you should point out that the, you know, 1988 was, is quite a while ago is receding into history. It is not the common frame of reference for a large portion of the electorate anymore. And we've, you know, seen the arguments about zombie Reaganism and the argument that Republican, the three legs of the stool may not be, uh, may be wobbly or may not be as strong as they used to be. And the argument that there is a need for an updated Republican platform, an updated Republican philosophy. And that's not the craziest argument in the whole wide world. But the idea that so much of what Trump's, I mean, first of all, I mean, think back to Trump of 2016 and how much he talked about building the wall, how much he raged against um, basically everything that had happened under the Obama administration. Right, and that he was there was a broad policy agenda that Trump, you know, was a big portion of what Trump was doing. You see less of it now. A lot more of it is about raging about 2020. A lot more of his conspiracy theories. A lot more. Of, also, I think just Trump's just overall instincts and judgments, which are always shaky, have gotten worse. The you know dinner with Nick Fuentes and hanging out with Kanye and suspend the Constitution. Like the other thing that's kind of amazing. You know, here he is now, well into his 70s, and Trump has no idea how anything in the constitution works. He still thinks somebody out there could like just declare him president. And you'd love to just sit down with him and say, who, who is going And maybe he thinks the Supreme court can suddenly step forward and say, Oh, you know what? We've decided that, you know, the election really was rigged and Biden's not the president. Everybody go back to your places. Trump moved back in all that kind of stuff. Like 
We're dealing with somebody whose attachment to reality was shaky on the best of days, and I don't think it's getting any better. And yet, some significant chunk of the Republican Party is looking at this and saying, yes, give me more of it, because I love this idea of him being my retribution, because I'm angry about the state of my life. I feel like I've been cheated out of a better life than I had. It's certainly not my fault. I certainly couldn't have made any bad decisions that put me in this place. And yes, Donald Trump will be my my uh, my icon, my hero, my savior, and I'm right with him as I want to burn this whole thing to the ground. Yeah, with Trump, I, I often, um, when thinking about his appeal, uh, harken back to Theodore Herzl, the great Zionist, a quote from him, it's the simple and fantastic that leads men. So the, the wall was a great example of that. Simple idea, uh, commonsensical idea. Easy to visualize, yes. Yeah, all sorts of complications can be really hard to, to make happen, as we learned. But, uh, you know, just had, a, had an inherent appeal. And so far, it's hard to see what, what the equivalent of that is now. Well, you know, we've got front, frontier cities and uh, flying cars. Maybe it's ending the Ukraine war in one day. But go ahead, Noah. Yeah, I mean, I, the idea of an American Magnitogorsk, some sort of industrial planned city, I don't know if it's going to move as many votes, for example, as the grand idea that all the people, the progenitors of this movement that Donald Trump seeks to co-opt pursued – which is ushering in a paradigmatic revolution about how Americans view the role of the state, indeed how the world views the role of the state, uh, in, in line with Mar Margaret Thatcher, who had a much bigger job of dismantling Clement Attlee's mixed economy. But these people, Reagan, all the way to, uh, to Paul Ryan, from the, from the Contract with America to the Tea Party, all of them pursued a grand, ambitious project, which was to change how Americans viewed the state and viewed their obligations in relation to the state. Mm -hmm. And what Donald Trump and his fellow populists are doing is not fighting. They have assumed for themselves the mantle of pugilism they do not deserve. What they're doing is surrendering to progressive orthodoxy, to add this in, the inertia that will eventually lead us to a debt crisis. And even Republicans who are renegade Republicans who will probably find themselves more in line with the Trump camp than anything else retreat to fiscal conservatism when they're confronted with democratic profligacy. Just the very, the centrifugal force of politics forces them back to the comfort of fiscal conservatism, if only to establish a contrast with progressives who they can never beat. They will never be able to outbid when it comes to spending us into, into pecuniary. But the, the, the Trump wing of this party seems to assume that all these people did nothing to advance conservative objectives when the precise opposite is, is empirically obvious. So Charlie Cook, X question to you. Reagan Republicanism will survive in, in some you know, adjusted, appropriately adjusted form in the medium term or will be extinguished in the Republican Party? Well, I don't think it will be extinguished, but it's not a great time for it. Of course, nor were the 1970s, which is why we needed Reagan to come and restore it. Reagan didn't invent it. This is a... I believe, a, a true insight into human nature and economics. And as a result, it will always return. But we're probably going to go through a period in which there is not a sufficient contrast between the parties. Jim Gardy. Charlie said a lot, and there's not a lot of... I basically concur with Charlie. But I think, I don't know, I think in spring of 2016... It became clear Trump was going to win the, the Republican nomination, and a lot of people jumped on board who were more traditional Reagan Republicans because he was the nominee. He was the option against Hillary. I still believe – and, you know, I still point out that Trump won, I think it was like 45 point something percent of all votes cast in the 2016 Republican primary, meaning that there was, you know, 50-some percent who were like, nah, I want something else, except unfortunately they were split out amongst 16 other candidates, and thanks to – son of mailman John Kasich, we never got a chance to have that one-on-one -on -one fight between Trump and Cruz or Trump and any other more traditional conservative. I'm still not convinced. I think it's close. I don't think there's necessarily, um, I don't think, you know, DeSantis or anybody else is going to have a slam dunk easy win, but I still think the Republican Party is more traditionally conservative than they are with the particular retribution brand of, uh, of Trumpism. Noah. Um, yeah, I just don't think that nationalistic populism on the right strikes a sufficient contrast with Democrats to be long-lived. If your assumption is bold colors, not pale pastels, uh, progressives will be able to outbid you on the 
your own program, which is to seize the levers of the state to benefit the particular constituencies you like. Um, if it's a contest between those two competing visions, they don't really compete, and progressives have a leg up because they've been doing this for a lot longer. Uh, I think Republicans will generally retreat to a, a more striking contrast, uh, which is cultural conservatism, social conservatism, as we've traditionally understand, understood it, and also a, a fiscal uh, conservatism that is prudential. Uh, and I, whether or not that appeals to voters is immaterial. It strikes the appropriate contrast with Democrats, and that's what you're going to want to see in a general election. I think it'll survive in a different form. I see that with DeSantis right now, and obviously there's a lot of interest in him and, and what he's done down in Florida. But, but, but if Trump wins uh, the presidency again, it's going to be uh, really, it, it's going to be just a, a, a tiny uh, faction <laughs> that uh, will, will be, be self-avowed uh, uh, Reaganites or um, uh, true believers in, in this kind of approach to um, America and world affairs. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor of this episode and go to Charlie for a great, uh, sincere, heartfelt plug for Ball and Branch Sheets. The sheets I sleep on every night here in Florida. You know, when I've heard other people talking about how much they like Ball and Branch Sheets, they talk about the Twilight Zone between the holidays and the summer, this strange period where it's sometimes hot and sometimes cold, and I just don't recognize what they're talking about, especially now. Um, my six-year-old said to me a couple of days ago that it was nice that it was summer again, which I suppose it is. But that's what's great about Ball and Branch Sheets, is that it doesn't matter whether it is that weird six weeks when it's not sunny all the time or the rest of the year, you still get your best sleep because Ball and Branch sheets are buttery and soft, made with the softest 100% organic cotton, in fact, you've ever felt. The kind of quality you will immediately feel and then go on and keep feeling. We have them on all the beds in our house. Finally worked out how to get the youngest out of our bed. Give him some Ball and Branch sheets because Ball and Branch uses the highest quality threads on earth. Their sheets are made from slow-grown organic cotton for a superior softness. They feel buttery to the touch. They're super breathable. They're perfect for both cooler and warmer months. They're loved by millions of sleepers. They're so luxurious. They are loved by three U.S. presidents. And they've got over 10,000 raving reviews. They feel incredible for all sleepers, whether you're four years old. Or 104 years old, they're made without toxins. They're free from pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. They fit the deepest of mattresses, and they are labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever. That sounds as if it is unnecessary. I can assure you from personal experience, it is necessary, at least for me. Ball & Branch will give you a 30-night risk-free guarantee with free shipping and free returns on all U.S. orders, but of course you won't need those returns. And if you are convinced... Then it's pretty easy to get hold of a set. You just need to go to ballandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D branch.com and use promo code EDITORS15, EDITORS15. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D branch.com forward slash EDITORS15. You'll get 15% off your first order. Awesome. Thanks so much, Charlie. So Noah, when we logged on to this podcast, we found you vaping furiously, typing away, working on a piece on the January 6th tapes released by Tucker Carlson. Last night, you were at 1,700 words before we so rudely interrupted you, but you obviously have some thoughts. Well, first off, I vape furiously and languidly. <laughs> generally just vaping. Um, but yes, uh, this is making a lot of news as of last night. A couple of weeks back, maybe a week and a half back, Kevin McCarthy, House Speaker, provided uh, Tucker Carlson and his program with closed caption TV footage of the events of January 6th from inside the Capitol. And we've been waiting to see what they would reveal. And last night, Tucker Carlson revealed them along with a variety of allegations about what they uh, purport to show. Um, this, unfortunately, because this is a 1,700-word piece so far going longer, it's very difficult to summarize these allegations and then dispute them as they deserve to be in, the, in this format. But his general allegations are that the so-called Q shaman, uh, Jacob Chainsley, um, was escorted through the building 
by Capitol Police officers, demonstrating that he viewed them as, quote, allies, that he was given a, quote, they were serving as, quote, tour guides. Um, they He also further alleges that quite a lot of these, uh, the events inside the Capitol, at least, were very peaceful. It was chaotic, sure, but it was, it was generally peaceful. Um, it was not a riot, as he maintains. It was certainly not an insurrection, he maintains. And moreover, uh, that the idea here that Brian Sicknick, the Capitol Hill police officer, was, quote, murdered um, by these demonstrators is not borne out. But Ashley Babbitt was, quote, murdered. Um, there are a lot of problems with this, this narrative that he's maintaining. Foremost among them is it's predicated on the assumption that you haven't seen any of the footage associated with what I think could really seriously be called the most videotaped photographed act of mass violence in American history. All of this footage that you've seen now from inside this Capitol building that wasn't previously released is supported by CCTV footage, CCTV footage that was released and also by the reams of footage that was captured by independent media outlets. The notion here that no one had ever before known that Jacob Chainsley was escorted by police through cordons because of the de-escalatory tactics that these officers you know, applied is betrayed by all the evidence of the officers who talked to, for example, HBO documentarians about the de-escalatory tactics they replied, they applied. Or the films uh, taken by New Yorker correspondent Luke Mogelson, who was in the Senate chamber, who photographed this individual who escorted Chainsley, who was surrounded himself by some 25 or more demonstrators, all of whom were very agitated, and who he was trying to talk down. Um, Carlson says that we don't know how he got in the building. Well, we do. Video shows him walking in the door after somebody smashed a window. He says, we don't know why, what did Chainsley do to deserve the months he got in prison. Well, the judge sentenced him to the lowest prescribed punishment and federal sentencing guidelines. All of this is available and to he, him. And he, he pled guilty, right? He pled guilty. And some of the video evidence wasn't shown because he pled guilty. But all of this is very public. Uh, it maintains all the, the idea that this wasn't a riot is betrayed by Again, all the video evidence of it demonstrating that it was very much a riot, and a lot of people were were hurt and wounded uh, in this in this event. But the notion here that it was not retailed as or this the Capitol Statuary Hall thick pictures, where people who were also chanting, by the way, "Hang members of elected officials, members of Congress, and the Vice President," was not retailed before as evidence that the narrative wasn't true here. Representative Andrew Clyde, during a 2021 oversight hearing, made the same allegation that um, Tucker Carlson is making, that it looked to him, if you were to only see that footage, and that footage alone, that you could it looked like just a normal tourist visit, unquote, according to him. Um, ProPublica has, has assembled this really amazing interactive database of footage that takes you in real time inside the Capitol, on the Capitol steps, and around the complex to show you exactly what was happening, where it was happening. It's not, you don't have to take my evidence for it. You just have to not gainsay the evidence of your own eyes, which is also the way in which he demonstrates or establishes somehow that Ashley Babbitt was, quote, murdered by police. The video evidence is there for you to peruse, but it's also a, a violation of journalistic ethics to say that she was murdered. Murdered has a legal definition. It is established in a court, and to say that without without essentially you're alleging that officer Michael Byrd who fired the first the only round that struck Babbitt's shoulder to which she later succumbed is was that the prosecutors were wrong that he had not they they found that he didn't violate a federal statute that he didn't violate her civil rights that they're wrong that this is a conspiracy it's all a conspiracy but it, it requires a whole lot of exposition for you to know why it's not a conspiracy. I have to sift through the nine days of transcripts of the January 6th committee hearings. I have to go through all this video evidence to dispute these claims. And all he has to do is make claims. Charlie, I, I take all Noah's points. I, I do think this is another indication that the January 6th committee would have benefited from having real Republicans who weren't on board the narrative on the committee. So the committee could have, uh, the majority could have released as slickly produced videos that, that showed the worst of this. And there was a lot that was horrible. And then Jim Jordan or whoever could have said, yeah, but, but look at this, you know, and this, this is mitigating evidence the other way. Uh, instead, we had a tightly controlled um, process uh, that uh, violated the norms of how these sort of committee, committees work. And I think um, they're going to pay the price for it. I think, you know, Republicans now, they're already tending this way or can consider the entire thing a, a gigantic hoax.
Well, let me take that in order. I obviously agree with your criticism of the January 6th committee because it's one I made myself. I'm not convinced, though, that the Republicans will benefit from this or that the members of the January 6th committee will be damaged by their approach. Certainly the election of 2022 suggests the opposite is the Mm -hmm. case, and I would not be surprised if Tucker Carlson's decision to put this back into the bloodstream ends up hurting Republicans rather than helping them. I keep coming back to the same core point here, which is that I am ultimately not sure what the point in all of the right-wing hand-waving around January 6th is. Let us assume, for the sake of argument, that some of the rioters were let in to Congress. Let's assume that the police didn't want to fight them, that they behaved differently depending on the entrance and exit, that they were engaged in some cases in de-escalatory tactics, or let's even assume, if we want to get conspiratorial, that some of the police officers were in on it. What does that prove? I've drawn this analogy before, I'll repeat it. In Oxford and Cambridge, I grew up in Cambridge, I went to university in Oxford, there are a great deal of very beautiful old colleges. The general public is usually not allowed into them. I historically have walked straight into them because I suppose I was young and looked like I could have been a student in some cases. In other instances, I perhaps walked in as if I was accustomed to going in and out, which I was having grown up there. And I've bypassed the porters who will traditionally say, no, you can't come in. Did that give me license to smash the place up? I mean, let's assume that we subpoenaed one of those porters and said, well, you seem to think this guy was allowed in. Yeah, I thought he was a student here. So what? I don't know what these people are trying to prove. No one, no one thinks that part of the quotidian capital tour is putting your feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk. No one thinks that those people who were allowed in as a matter of course, to the Capitol, are allowed to draw on the walls and smash windows and sit in the Speaker's chair and disrupt proceedings. The core problem here is not that there was one incident that could be read in a bunch of different ways over which we should spend years, as we did with the Zapruder film, arguing about this or that frame. The core problem here is that having lost the 2020 election, Donald Trump tried to stage a coup. He didn't primarily do this by encouraging the rioters of January 6th, although that was part of it, not in a criminal way, I grant, but morally. He did it by insisting that the 12th Amendment to the US Constitution and the Electoral Count Act allowed the vice president to reinstate him as president, even though he had lost. There is no dispute over that. He did it. He said it out loud. His lawyers argued it. He's still arguing it. And in pursuit of that aim, a relatively small number of people, but people nevertheless, went into Congress to look for Mike Pence, take retribution against those whom they believed, I think in many cases genuinely, were stealing the election, and to disrupt proceedings. The specific details over whether or not this police officer was killed then or the day after or directly or indirectly or whether that exit was properly patrolled or whether this person was moved around, they matter if you are dealing in a very narrow sense with the questions that pertain to a given person or act. They matter if you are the defense lawyer for a given person who has been accused of a given act. They don't matter in general. I don't know what Tucker Carlson or Julie Kelly or any of the other people who are obsessed with this think they are going to end up demonstrating. 
What is the end game? That there wasn't a riot? That the photographs and videos are fake? That Donald Trump didn't give that speech? That the proceedings of the United States Congress were not for the first time in its history interrupted and delayed? That Donald Trump did not try to advance the case that he won the election and that he had the power to overturn the result? What's the end game? I'm just baffled by this. Mm-hmm. So, Jim, one, one way to look at this uh, and the broadest possible gauge is these people were violent rioters, so they're not our people. They're, they're not on our team by, by definition. Then the other way to look at it, which, which is the prism a lot of pe- other people are viewing it from, is these are our people. So whatever they did, we have to find a way to try to defend them or minimize their offenses. Yeah, and I think that's the philosophy at work in Tucker Carlson's uh, recent presentation. Rich, I just want to step back and ask, did Tucker Carlson show us all of his interview with Kanye West, or did he leave all the ranting about the Jews and Magic Cities and all that stuff? Did he leave all that on the cutting room floor? This is a rhetorical question, I assume. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Correct. Uh, but then Tucker Carlson went in front of his, you know, his viewers and said, you know, is West crazy? You can judge for yourself as what we're as you watch what we're about to show you, which, oh, by the way, took out all the crazy parts. And Tucker said, crazy? That was not our conclusion. In fact, we've rarely heard a man speak so honestly and so movingly about what he believes. But again, you can judge for yourself. No, you can't judge for yourself because Tucker Carlson and his producers kept all the crazy stuff on the cutting room floor. Then, uh, another rhetorical question, Riss, so you don't so you don't get caught off guard by this. <laughs> Did Tucker Carlson want Fox News to fire Jackie Heinrich for reporting the truth during the twenty after the twenty twenty election? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, he did. According to the so, in that context, why on earth would we ever expect Tucker Carlson? to present to us a full and accurate picture of what happened on January 6th. We should not. We should know that this is all going to be selected to promote Tucker Carlson's preferred narrative. And that again, that this was a tour that was not really a riot, that many people were, were peaceful and stuff like that. And a lot of this was just an innocent misunderstanding. They thought they were on a tour. Hey, guys, um, do, are the lecterns available on, on the House of Congress to take as souvenirs? Do the regular tours take you through the speaker's office? Do you, do you get to go on the floor of the house, the dace, all that kind of stuff? No? Oh, wow. I, you know, funny how that happened. So uh, just an utterly infuriating, this idea of, oh, look, this was just this mild get-together. It's this perfectly normal rally. And then just a couple people just started smearing feces on the walls. Go figure, you know, mm-hmm. happens at every protest. Mm-hmm. And it just, yeah. So it's utterly infuriating, but I think now part of a consistent pattern of what we come to expect from Tucker Carlson. So Noah Rothman, next question to you. Ambitious Republicans who are angling for the presidential nomination or major offices will speak uh, forthrightly about January 6th, sometime in the 2024 cycle, sometime in the 2028 cycle. Never. Never. Uh, And it's it's a real... uh, Deficit to them, I, I, I think. Um, one of the advantages of having a primary, the few, is that you get to inoculate yourself against charges that will inevitably be leveled against the general elect, the nominee in the general election. And Republicans seem positively allergic to addressing forthrightly and uh, engaging with uh, the evidence uh, in front of their eyes in that day. I have very little tolerance for um, those Republicans who claim, well, this was a partisan exercise, because that's what they wanted. Republicans in Congress had the opportunity to, to uh, greenlight an independent blue-ribbon-style commission that would divorce this process from politics, and they declined. They, got, they said they would get a partisan exercise out of Democrats who controlled the House. If they did decline, that's what they got. And I think, in part, they wanted it, if only to demonstrate that it would be a partisan exercise. January 6th Committee is not above criticism. I've criticized, criticized them. They've taken some cheap shots, some partisan shots, the cheap and the uh, exercise that we were, they were engaged in. But everybody's playing their assigned roles in that regard, and it's a role that Republicans anticipated they would play. Uh, I don't think there's any room for Republicans who want uh, to play on the national stage to talk about the events of January 6th in ways that an independent observer would recognize as a 
a, a rough facsimile of the truth of the events that they witnessed with their own eyes. And that's a real problem in a general election because it will come up. Republicans are going to be tarred as the party of insurrection. And if their, their rejoinder to that is, no, none of it ever happened. You do, you've been misled by the media. They're going to sound like crazy people. Charlie Cook, 2024, 2028, or never. I think never. Yeah. Jim Garrity. There will be a little bit of discussion uh, in the 2024 cycle. There'll be a debate question on it, and Trump will say what they did to those people was just terrible. And he'll be talking about what law enforcement did to the rioters, not what the rioters did to everyone else who they were terrifying on that day. Um, I think some candidates will try to finesse it and say what happened was terrible, but there are legitimate questions about the prosecution or blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. Um, and I think that maybe one or two will come out and say, no, no, it was terrible. Is, you know, throw the book at those maniacs. Um, but I think a lot of Republicans would just like to forget January 6th ever happened. Yeah, I think I agree. Basically, the answer is never. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor of this episode, Babbel. One of the most exciting things about a new year is that you have no idea what adventures are in store for you. From new travel experiences to new jobs or picking up new skills, there's no better way to dive into 2023, which is well underway here, than by learning a new language with Babbel. Babbel is a language learning app that's sold more than 10 million subscriptions thanks to Babbel's addictively fun and easy bite-sized language lessons. You can feel confident no matter where the new year takes you. With Babbel, you only need 10 minutes to complete a lesson so you can start having real-life conversations in a new language in as little as three weeks. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 150 language experts and voiced by real native speakers, not computers. Their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. There's so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash editors. That's babbel.com slash editors for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. So Charlie, we hit this a little bit on Friday's episode, but Joe Biden, somewhat surprisingly, says he's not going to veto a repeal of the soft on crime DC um, bill that Republicans want to roll back. And there's been a lot of blowback against Biden from his own party. What do you make of it? Well, there's the politics, there's the merits, and then there is the structure. The politics of it are smart. Biden's party is already mistrusted on crime, and rightly so, at a time in which crime rates are increasing. The Democrats figured out in the mid-1990s, that they needed to neutralize the Republican advantage on crime, and they did it, often in ways I dislike, for what it's worth. Biden was there. Biden wrote a lot of that legislation. He then ended up disavowing it, but he understood its necessity then, and those habits die hard. This is smart. The merits... I think also lend themselves to intervention from Congress. Because of the way the Constitution works, I have no particular attachment to home rule in D.C. If Congress wishes to, it can interfere, unlike with the states, which are sovereign entities in and of themselves. D.C. is not. D.C. is a creation of the Constitution. It did not exist prior to the Constitution's ratification, and it is not subject to the enumerated powers doctrine. If it sees, Congress that is, bad things happening in D.C., then it can and should intervene, much in the same way as it would have and should have intervened in the Northwest Territories. The structure of it did make me laugh, though. Some people have said that it is hypocritical, 
of Democrats who claim that they want Washington, D.C. to be a state to have got involved in local governance. I have a slightly different view. I think it is absolutely of a piece with the Democrats' basic philosophy. Do you think they would behave any differently if it were a state? <laughs> they don't behave any differently with the existing 50. The democratic approach to politics, and this has been the case for a long time, is that Washington, D.C. is where all the action is and should be, that the role of the state should be limited. If Democrats turned Washington, D.C. into a state somehow, I expect that they would bully that state in exactly the same way as they do Florida or Nebraska or Oregon. So uh, while I do think it is funny to see this disconnect between the supposed inviolability of the democratic rights of the people of Washington, D.C., and the president summarily saying that he's going to help Republicans interfere, it in some ways should prepare the people of Washington, D.C. for how they will be treated by a Democratic president if they ever get their wish. So, Jim, I'm not sure that this is what Biden was intending, but there, there are really worse things for him than being accused uh, of being a racist or supporting racist policies by the crazy people in his own party. Yeah, um, but I think this may create you know, mild headaches down the road, less for him than for the party as a whole. Um, I was doing Chuck Todd's program when the news broke that Biden was going to uh, stand with Republicans on this. And they, you know, rearranged the topics. And basically everyone around me at that uh, NBC studio was acting like this was a very big deal. And I was thinking like, you know, to use a infamous phrase, I'm like, this is a local crime story. Um, and then I entirely thought about it. I was like, okay, no, I do see why this is a big deal because there are a lot of Democrats uh, call them centrists, call them moderates, whatever you want to call them, who basically believed that the abolish the police stuff was, you know, dead and buried after 2020. Um, and that the cities, having learned their lesson, were going to go in a more uh, responsible direction. Eric Adams was a former cop. They got rid of the DA in San Francisco. Uh, Lori Lightfoot just got, you know, tossed out on her keister by, with just 17% of the vote. And along comes the DC council overruling Mayor Muriel Bowser and saying, no, no, we want to go ahead with this and we want to reduce carjacking sentences when the city is having more than one carjacking a day. And, you know, um, the commander's running back got shot uh, by a apparently 14-year-old carjacker before the season started. Thankfully, he healed, came back, was able to play games and all that stuff. But like, you know, this is like vivid, heavily covered. Nobody, everybody knows Washington, D.C. has a terrible carjacking problem going on. And the D.C. Council wants to lower the sentences? Really? You know, um, so I think there are certain Democrats who are like, what is going on with these cities? You've, you know, like, it's one thing to, like, reduce sentences when things are going well. And you think, oh, okay, we can do this. We can embrace criminal justice reform. It's another thing when you are, like, you know, the, the, the downtown D.C., these parts of downtown D.C. are starting to look like the set of The Last of Us. Uh, just abandoned, you know. And not, I'm talking, like, you know, lots of un, uh, abandoned storefronts in, like, uh, M Street in Georgetown, Wisconsin Avenue, all kinds of places downtown. Apparently, office use down in downtown D.C. is like 53% on a Wednesday, and it's lower on the Mondays and the Fridays. So, like, downtowns are dying, and they're, they're you know, the D.C. Council wants to make, you know, less sentences for carjacking and for violent crime. So I think, like, there are a bunch of Democrats who say, oh, my God, what are you doing? Of course, you, you know, Biden has to step in on this. And then there are a bunch of us who'd be like, ah, you know, actually, we probably should, uh, uh, you know, you know, if you believe in home rule, you believe in home rule. And Joe Biden can talk a good game about home rule. But obviously this demonstrates, I mean, unless D.C. Council does something he doesn't want him to do, and then, then he, he can overrule it. Noah? The usual suspects coming out and saying, well, this is just plainly racist, is unimpressive. MSNBC's Jesse Hollins, Washington Post's Perry Bacon, Philly Inquirer's Will Bunch, to be expected. From the Associated Press, however, no less a venue than the AP, uh, alleging that Joe Biden's capitulation to Republicans here represents a trend in which, quote, predominantly white legislative bodies are seeking to curb or usurp the authority of local governments in cities with large black populations, isn't going to redound in the AP's favor. The Politico reported that this vote, which now has le is symbolic because the D.C. City Council has withdrawn this crime bill in anticipation of a humiliating rebuke by Congress. Politico reports that, most Democrats now expect a big vote in favor of unraveling the crime plan, just as a statement of principle. So these, those who would tar Republicans as racist here are now going to have to tar all their fellow Democrats in Congress. 
It's of a piece with what happened in Chicago, where all of a sudden every Democratic primary voter in Chicago had become the equivalent of Bull Connor. It's just, it just defies belief. It strains credulity. And in order for you to articulate that premise yourself, you have to subordinate your reason to a partisan impulse. Not everybody's capable of doing that. So Charlie Cook, X question to you. Rate, just in terms of sheer politics, Biden's performance on the crime bill from zero to 10, zero. He, he doesn't get anything from it. It's uh, not a big deal. 10, exemplary. I think it's exemplary. He has the power to intervene. He is doing so in pursuit of a worthy policy aim, and it's good politics. Jim Garrity. I'm going to give Biden a split five. And obviously the, the good part is that I think if he said, nah, you go ahead, reduce sentences for carjackings, that would be worse. Uh, but if you're going to say to the D.C. Council, no, you can't do this, I'm stepping in, I'm saving you from your own bad judgment, you probably want to do it after like 81% of House Democrats have said, no, yeah. we don't want to do this. Yeah. Noah. Yeah, I completely agree with Jim. I think that's appropriate. A lot of people who thought they could throw brushback pitches at Biden by saying, well, you believe in home rule and you're just doing this for political expediency. Assuming that the principle here was that he really believed in home rule and political expediency was just something that he had to consider. No, it's the other way around. Political expediency is the principle. Home rule had absolutely no consequences with it, associated with its, his endorsement of it, until now, at which point the consequences became too much to bear. So I don't give him a lot of credit for courage. As a matter of politics, it's obviously good for him. But, you know, he's the president of the United States. You would expect him to know what's politically good for him. I'm going to say, I'm going to put it up at an eight. I subtract two for the, hanging those Democrats out to dry, which is not a great thing. You know, they reversed themselves. There's the expectation that Biden would veto this. And as uh, Jim Jim noted, uh, relating his appearance on Chuck Todd's show, this was a, a surprise to, to everyone, which wasn't a great way to handle it. But just um, for Biden's own purposes, it's a Rich, it's a pen. Yeah. can I break the exit rules? Yes. Uh, and say why I disagree with you, subtracting two. Of course. Yeah. Because the fact that it was a surprise made it more newsworthy. And the fact that he was seen bucking his own party is what makes it mm -hmm. such a strong political move. Very often we hear people on the center right saying, especially with crime, where is the Democrat sister soldier moment? Well, yes, it's different to criticize your party's elected representatives than it is sister soldier but he is not going to hurt here from having got on the other side of his party in the public's eyes independents love that stuff sometimes to a fault so i would keep the two that's why i went with a 10 okay Okay, then in that case, can I jump yeah. in and put this, just make the observation? <laughs> if you're Joe Biden, you're going to do this, then you call up Muriel Bowser, you call up the head of the D.C. Council, you give them a heads up that you're making this decision, and apparently nobody at the White House did that, which I think is just, that's basic blocking and tackling of politics. So I'd still take off those two points. So you took off five, though, Jim, didn't you? Yeah, no, I go. Because I think it was, it's generally worse to leave, like, almost your entire House Democrats hanging. All right, so you think I'm, you so think I'm bad, Charlie. Jim, Jim subtracted five. Jim is three worse than you. <laughs> All right. Let me do a quick plug for NR+. Plus. I would do a plug for our webathon the way I did last week, but thanks to everyone who might have contributed, it uh, looks like we're going to meet our goal today. Um, so uh, if you, if you want to get in and you haven't already, please, please uh, do. Uh, even if we meet our goal, we'll still uh, uh, happily accept a, a late, a late contrib contribution that puts us a little over our goal. So thanks everyone for that. Um, but let me plug NR Plus digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way to get around our meter paywall, your way to see many, many, many fewer ads on the website, your way to dig deeper into the NR community, commenting on blog uh, on blog posts and articles and getting invited to exclusive calls and events with NR writers and editors. So a great deal all around. And uh, crucially, a really important way to support our valuable journalism. So if you're not already a member, please consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR+. So let's hit a few other things before we go. Some some epic uh, entertainment activities uh, with the Garrett, uh, the Garrity family. Jim, a bowling outing. 
Yes, I, I well, before we started taping, my co-host said that is the most Alexander DeSanctis <laughs> option you have put out on this. And people have wondered, you know, look, we all we all love Alexandra, and we're glad she's thriving at the think tank. Uh, people have asked why she's not on this podcast as often, and the answer I regret to inform listeners is the squirrel's gone. <laughs> um, so no, so yeah, we went out bowling, and uh, here's the thing I learned because it's been a long while since I'd gone out bowling. If you are a boy between, I don't know, eight, nine, or maybe even a little bit younger to the teen years, you've gone to a lot of birthday parties and you've probably had a lot of birthday parties, you know, at bowling alleys. Thus, you've kept your skills up. It's been like, you know, probably pre-pandemic since the last time I went bowling. First time I go up there, boom, strike. I'm like, yes, I'm going to do great. This is, you know, I always seem to do very well or very badly in, uh, in bowling. My now new teenager goes up there and you know, a couple spares. But the thing is, my younger teenager just like, you know, kept having good ones. Didn't have any gutter balls. Just kept going, you know, knocking down some here, knocking down some there. I had another strike and then I had like terrible gutter balls. I was feast or famine all night long. And my younger son just wiped the floor with us by the end of the game. So here's the thing. Don't be careful when you go up against those 13-year-olds. Mm-hmm. They actually know what they're doing when it comes to bowling. It's it's astonishing to think back, you know, when we were, when we were younger, bowling was on major network television. Yes. Yeah? ABC's Wide World of yeah, Sports. Absolutely. What a great what a great show that was. So Noah, you got a totally awesome ice cream maker. I do. This is gonna sound like a product placement, but it's just amazing. So ice cream is not cheap, right? But and and making ice cream when I remember when I was as a kid was this laborious process using these giant hunking pieces of equipment, and it didn't usually work all that well. You got kind of this chunky, icy thing that just didn't meet the standards of the store. This thing's called K-U-M-I-O Kumio. And it's just so plug and play for the low, low cost of two cups of cream and some sugar and vanilla extract. You have yourself store quality ice cream at you know a fraction of the cost and you just plug it, makes it, walk away, put it in a thing. It's really quite amazing. We're having a lot of fun experimenting with it. So couldn't, couldn't recommend it highly, highly enough. Charlie. My theory is that this doesn't actually exist as a consumer product, and Noah doesn't have one, but this is an attempt to get in on my Moink reads by demonstrating in another context how well he would do them. Noah, speak up. Am I wrong? Well, I mean, (laughs) far be it for me to encroach, but if Kumio wants to pay us, I wouldn't object. Well, I have indirectly because it was a birthday present to my wife from my parents been benefiting from this gorgeous book on tuscan cooking full of recipes that my wife has been working her way through and in and of itself this this is a beautiful book i think it was written in the 1980s it's full of extraordinary photographs of food and of tuscany too but of course being not an especially good cook uh, I get all of the benefits of this book and none of the work. So I'm uh, I'm pleased that it was uh, it winded its way into our home. I recently read this wonderful book called The Story of English. It's gone through multiple editions and just a marvelous tour of the development of the English language. Some of it I wasn't so interested in, Charlie, especially they spent a lot of time discussing Cockney, which I, I'm just, I have zero interest in, but I'm sure you can... Can, can you give us a Cockney sentence or two? Watch your mate. I don't want to do that right now. <laughs> By the way, Cockney became right, the that. Australian accent, which is the most interesting thing about Cockney. So with that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? Well, a lot of strong competitors uh, this week, but because I wrote about TikTok uh, in today's Morning Jolt, Caroline Downey has a fascinating story. Uh, headline is TikTok's new filter will exacerbate girls' mental health spiral, experts predict. I had tried to lay out some of the significant problems with TikTok in today's jolt, and I didn't even get onto this. Basically, there's this new filter that when you put it on, it's supposed to be this flawless version of yourself. And uh, basically, it eliminates any flaws and tries to make it look like a supermodel or something like that. And it's basically like if you're trying to design, what app could we do to give people insecurities and give young girls body issues and all of that stuff? Oh, this was it. This this is what we could do. Um, it's a eye-opening, kind of horrifying story, but I still think everybody should read it. Check it out. Good reporting from Caroline Downey. Noah, what's your pick? Uh, so I'm going back a ways with this, about a week, unfortunately, and I don't know if anybody else has already mentioned this, but it's just such a great piece that I want to bring it to everyone's attention. If you missed it, which is Michael Brandon Doherty's When Being Right Isn't Enough, 
has to do with the COVID-19 revelations, but also a variety of other revelations. And it's just a profound insight into the ways in which society just simply does not reward people who are iconoclasts in the moment and end up being correct. And if we want more of that, we'll have to figure out ways to reward it. Charlie. I'm taking Jim's extremely depressing post, asking whether Republicans lost the Obamacare wars and concluding that, yes, Republicans lost the Obamacare wars. I read this yesterday, and I thought, that can't be right. And then I concluded that actually it is right. The only counterpoint that I could contrive is that there were ancillary benefits to the majorities that Republicans won as a result of fighting Obamacare. But I think Jim is completely right. I think that the last 12 years really did deliver an L for the right on this question. So my pick is Dan McLaughlin's piece, How Old Is Joe Biden?, where Dan just comes up with this incredible list of things that vividly demonstrate just how old Joe Biden is, one of Queen Victoria's children was still alive when Biden was born, et cetera, et cetera. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and a rebroadcast, retransmission, or account this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thanks to Charlie. Thanks to Jim. Thanks to Noah. Thanks to Ball and Branch and Babel. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.